We ran across that song again recently. Uh, my wife, Sue Ann, had not remembered it. It actually came out back in 1977 uh, by Randy Newman, who wrote it and performed it. And it, uh, it sounds pretty crass, doesn't it? Pretty prejudiced against short people. Uh, and that's why I shared it today. It's because we're going to be dealing with the subject of prejudice today in our series that we're doing through the book of James. Uh, I read an article where Randy Newman said he didn't really mean physically short people in the song. He meant people that are short-tempered and uh, short on the love and short, you know. But, but I, I didn't take it that way when I heard it. So, uh, something about it just is personal to me. Uh, I don't know why, but it just really resonated with me in a different way. Uh, because, you know, I know short people and it's hard, hard for them. We are continuing a series today, just going straight through the book of James. We finished up with chapter 1. We've already looked at how he told us to be calm under pressure. We need to work hard at resisting temptation. Uh, We need, uh, last week we talked about controlling our temper the way we need to, keeping that under the control of the Spirit of God. And today the title is Be Free of Prejudice. Now, he doesn't use exactly the word prejudice, but the, the description and the words that he uses do relate to what we would call prejudice today in our culture and how we interact with each other and view each other and see each other. And uh, I think we've learned some important lessons. So the first half, we're going to be looking at the problem with prejudice, and then we're going to be looking at practical applications of what he teaches us about how we need to respond to the problem of prejudice in our lives. So let's begin, first of all, the problem with prejudice. And the first problem with prejudice is really clear and simple and easy to understand. Remember, when you want to go deep in Scripture, here's how you go deep. You look at what the deep subject is and you clarify it so everybody can understand it. And James does an amazing job with taking very deep subjects and teaching them in very clear, easy to understand, practical ways that we can apply to everyday life. That's why we call this series a blueprint for making faith work. If you're going to live out your faith, this is a good blueprint for how to do that. Okay. So the first problem is it is inconsistent with God's Word. Prejudice is inconsistent with God's Word. I don't care what excuse you use for it. I don't care what what reason you give for it. It is simply not in line with the teachings of the Word of God to have prejudice. Okay? Let's look in verse 1 through 5. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So who is he talking to? Us, Christians, Christ followers. He's saying these are instructions specifically for followers of Jesus Christ. He's not talking to people outside the church, though these principles could be good for them too. He's addressing specifically followers of Jesus Christ here, okay? Here's what he says. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show, what's that word? Favoritism. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because the word translated favoritism is actually a combination of a couple of words in the original language, which means to take at face, We might use the phrase sometimes to take at face value. But what they mean by that in the original language is, is you make predetermined judgments about something based on what you see on the surface. Okay? It could be the color of their skin. It could be the clothes they're wearing. It could be anything that causes you. It could be that they're short. Okay? Whatever it is, you make a predetermined 
decision about what you think and how you react to that person based on that outward appearance that you see. We use the term today, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? Well, we say that, but we all have a tendency, everybody, Christ followers too, we all have a tendency to have a first reaction, a first response to what we see on the outside, don't we? Now, that, that can't be totally eliminated. We all have some of that, but he talk, he's going to talk about how to handle that, okay? That we can't think it's okay to follow through on that way of thinking as if it's, it's all right with God because it's not, okay? He says, he gives an example. I love this example because it is so practical and it happens all the time in churches all over the world. Here's what happens. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. All right, you know the description he's talking about here. Walks in looking all fine, you know, looking like he's got... He's got rings on the fingers, and he's got the gold chains. He's got the fancy clothes. He's got everything to look like he's successful, right? And then you got a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. Here at Lakeshore, it would be in the back over on the side, right? <laughs> in their culture, it would be a front row seat. In the synagogues, the chief seats were in the front row. And so that carried over a lot into the early church meetings, too, that the, the best seats were seen as the ones right up front. I'm amazed at how many people will pay extra for that at a concert. And at a free thing like the church, you'll make sure you sit in the back, right? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Uh, I don't spit that far. You're fine. You're fine up closer to the front. All right? Here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand here or sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not, here's another word, discriminated among yourselves and become judges with, what, do you, what does he call those thoughts? Evil thoughts. When you make face value judgments about people, in God's eyes, that is evil. No exceptions. It's evil to do that. And we've all been raised to some of that, haven't we? We've all had some of that around us. We've all received some of that. We've all given some of that to others. We all live in the real world. And he says that to continue to do that if you are a Christ follower is doing something evil in the eyes of God. Even those thoughts are evil in the eyes of God. Even if you don't act on them, the thoughts themselves are evil thoughts in the eyes of God. Okay? Then he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? He, he's making a distinction here based on, on the rich-poor analogy that he did. Now, this analogy applies to more than just rich and poor, but he's using that first as the first analogy to teach this. He's saying... Hasn't God opened up the kingdom to poor people too? I mean, the kingdom interest is based on those who love him, not on how much money they have or don't have. Entrance into the kingdom is based on whether or not you choose to love God enough to surrender to his will for your life. That's what gives you entrance into the kingdom. It's never based on any of the face value stuff that we sometimes put on it. Okay, so God is welcoming all people, and it's not based on outward things at all. 
What we learn about God when you study scripture and you look at the life of Jesus is that there was no discrimination. There was no prejudice in God's treatment of his creation of his people at all. None. It's not in his character. It's not in his nature. And he has consistently in his word taught against all prejudice. Okay. Now, when I say prejudice, I want you to understand prejudice runs all across the gamut. Whites against blacks and blacks against whites. And, and, and sometimes even within those ranges, it's, 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 it's whites that have money and whites that don't have money or blacks that have darker skin or lighter skin or Hispanics or whatever it is. Uh, when I was in the Dominican Republic, uh, they were discriminatory against the Haitians. They live on the same island. There's just one, not even a real border between the two countries. And, and yet they discriminated against each other, even though they looked so much alike and acted so much alike and had some of the same challenges, they, they still discriminated against each other right there on that same island. It's amazing how ingrained this is in our culture. And yet he's teaching us about God's view of this. In Proverbs 22 and verse 2, or his, Proverbs 22 verse 2, here's what God says. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Who made that person that you are thinking those thoughts about? that you are being prejudiced toward. Who made that person? God did. God made that person too. Okay? There was an encounter that Peter had. Peter struggled with this. I want you to know that church leaders struggled with this too. Peter, one of the greatest leaders of the church, struggled with this because when the church started, it was almost exclusively among the Jews, right? On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, those that gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, those that repented that day and the 3,000 that were baptized, that was a Jewish audience. The church started among a Jewish audience with the Jewish people. In fact, God said it was going to start that way. It would begin there and then it would spread out to all the others from there. But here was the problem. The Jews struggled with the concept that God would actually allow non-Jews, Gentiles, to be welcomed into the church that they were part of. I mean, and that was racial and social and their culture. That's what it was. Now, that wasn't about money. That was about race and culture, ethnicity. And so they struggled with that. And so Peter has this vision at the same time that Cornelius is having this dream. All right, Cornelius is a Gentile, and he has this dream where God tells him to, to send for a man named Peter, told him where he lived and everything, and send some people out to get him and, and bring him to you, okay, because he's going to share good news with you. And then Peter has this dream. There's this, there's this sheet or tablecloth that's let down from heaven, and in that tablecloth are all manners of animals that under the old law had been deemed unclean. And yet, in the vision, he's told, get up and kill and eat all these animals, including the unclean ones. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, I can't, I can't, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then the answer that God gave him was, don't call anything impure or unclean that I've made clean. He did that three times to Peter. So when Cornelius shows up at Peter's house, Peter <laughs> is pressured into by God having to acknowledge that God welcomed Gentiles into the kingdom just like he welcomed Jews into the kingdom. There was no division there. 
Even after this, Peter still struggled with it. The church still struggled with it. Later on, the church had this meeting. They, they called a council of leaders in the church to decide what restrictions they needed to put on Gentiles to let them into the church. Isn't that amazing? God has already shown them that there are no restrictions, that they're welcome in on the same terms that anybody else would be welcome in. But they wanted to put, they have to be circumcised first, or they have to refrain from eating this or drinking. They were trying to put all these restrictions to allow them to be included as if they're not on equal terms with the Jews who were part of the church. You see, mankind in the flesh, we're fallen and we're sinful, and we struggle with this stuff. But God's teaching is consistently clear that he welcomes all people, all on the same level, into his kingdom without preference toward one or the other. So Peter says in Acts 10, verse 34, after Cornelius comes and God shows that he welcomes them in his household, Peter began to speak. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show what? Favoritism. God does not show favoritism. Not to Republicans, Democrats, not toward whites, blacks, rich, poor, whatever thing you want to stick in there that's a problem. God does not show any favoritism there, period. Now, in our culture, the favoritism has shifted somewhat. Uh, in some ways, it's good, but in some ways, it goes too far to the other extreme sometimes. Now, I am the number one enemy of our culture. Because I am an older white male. And in our culture today, older white males got no business teaching anybody else anything because of all the terrible things white males have done throughout all of human history. Now, I've done some bad things, but you don't put all that on me, okay? I didn't do all that stuff, okay? And the bad things I have done, I've repented of and sought grace and forgiveness for, and I still will do that. But in the eyes of the culture today, an older white male, that's a bad person. Now, I don't meet all the standards. I'm not wealthy. If I was wealthy, it'd be even worse, right? Okay? Now, I'm wealthy in, in, in the world standards, but not in the U.S. standards, right? So, we need to know that you can do this either direction with any group out there. You can have this face value judgment about people. And when they say something that if you are predetermined to think they are racist and they say anything that could be taken that way, what do you immediately jump to? They're racist or they're prejudiced in some other way, right? You immediately jump there if you've predetermined that's what they're like by their appearance, by who they are, okay? So we have to battle this. We have to work on this because it is totally against the teachings of God's Word. He says, secondly, it's also an insult to the poor. The example that he gave is actually an insult to the poor people in that meeting. Look at verse 6 and 7. But you've dishonored the poor. It's not the rich who are exploiting you. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, in that culture, much like today, in order to be in those positions of authority, almost exclusively, it would be wealthy people who held those positions of authority. Have you ever tried to run for anything in our culture today? Do you know how much money it takes even to win just a local election? So who do we end up with mostly in those positions of authority? 
people who either have money or owe their lives to people who have money. Right? That's who we usually end up with. And just look at the list of people in Congress today and how many of them are multi-millionaires that are making decisions for our country. They own Democrats and Republican side, both sides, multi-millionaires in Congress today who are making the decisions that we all have to live under, right? Well, the church was living in a system like that where rich people were the ones making the decisions and they had decided the church was wrong and evil. Nero was persecuting the church. The Jewish leaders were persecuting the church. They were the wealthy people in their culture. And yet he says when a wealthy person walked into their meeting, what did they do? They treated them better than they did the poor person. Now, how ridiculous is that? He's pointing out how ridiculous that is that the very group that is persecuting you is the group you're giving preference to when they come into your meeting. That's, that's crazy. And he's pointing out how crazy that is. They're the ones dragging you to court. They're the ones blaspheming the noble name of Christ. So in Matthew 5 and verse 3, you are reminded of how God looks at this. He says, blessed Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit has nothing to do with money. Absolutely nothing to do with money. He's not talking about financially poor people. He's talking about poor in spirit, which means they don't recognize God as God. They don't have their spiritual life in order. They are poor in spirit. They are the poorest people of all. And they can have a lot of money or no money and still be very poor in spirit. Okay? So he says the poor in spirit are the ones who need to be brought into the kingdom, the ones who don't have it yet, the ones who don't have that connection yet. Those are the ones we need to bring into. Those are the ones God longs for. The lost sheep that's as we heard earlier, that need to be brought into the kingdom. Well, there's another problem with this. It ignores the royal law. I've already talked about how it's contrary to God's word. Look at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Then he gives this illustration. I love it. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, what have you become? A lawbreaker. In other words, any one part of the law that you break makes you a what? Lawbreaker. And the royal law says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we like to, like the lawyer who asked Jesus, right? What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what did he want to do? He wanted to justify himself. So he said, well, then who is my neighbor? (laughs) Isn't that the way we like to practice Christianity? Well, let's be clear here. Do I have to love that person? Would that be my neighbor? Or do I have to love that one? Is that one my neighbor? We still want to distinguish between people as if some should be loved and some should not be loved, don't we? As if we're obligated to love some but not obligated to love others. Yes, we need to love all people. That is the royal law of God. And we shouldn't love one differently than we love the other. We should have the same value toward all people. You know why? Because God values all people equally. All people, 
equally, no matter who they are or where they come from. He values them all equally. No matter what they look like on the outside, how much money they have or don't have, he values all people equally. And so if we're going to be growing up to be like Jesus, we're going to start learning to do what? Love all people how? Equally. It doesn't mean you like everything about all people equally. That's not what he's saying. God doesn't like sinful actions at all. He hates sinful actions, but he still loves all people equally. We've got to learn to to get those two things right. We don't have to love the actions to love the person the way God loves the person. So, So in Galatians 5 and verse 14, it says this. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> oh, but they don't have the same political views I do. And they, they, they don't support what I support. And they don't look like I look. And they're so much taller than me. Do I have to love them anyway? Absolutely. Yes. God calls you to love them anyway. So let's shift now to the second part. Let's finish up with this, the, the practical applications of this teaching. I want to I look at how he concludes this segment in verses 12 and 13. Here's what he says. Speak and act. Okay, so here's action he's telling us to take in our speech and our actions. Speak and act as those who are going to be what? Judged by the law that gives freedom. Now that sounds contradictory. The law that gives what? Freedom. So is there a law? Yes, remember, he's already talked about the royal law. What is the royal law? Love everybody. But it's a law that gives freedom. The freedom is you don't have to pick and choose. You're free to love everybody, okay? So you're going to be judged by that royal law that gives freedom because judgment, listen to this, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been what? Merciful. And he adds this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I want to break it down to a few practical applications of how we need to act and speak so that mercy can triumph over justice. Okay? By the way, please don't ask God for justice ever. Okay? You need to understand that. If you ask God for justice in your life, if I ask him for justice in my life, I would have no hope whatsoever. I plead mercy. And if I want mercy in my life, what have I got to be willing to give others? Mercy. That's how the judgment's going to work. If I want mercy, and believe me, I do. That's what I want more than anything. Then I've got to be willing to extend mercy to others. So let's look at some categories here. He obviously made the illustration we need to be free of financial prejudice, right? As a church, we need to be free of financial prejudice. And as I say church, I'm talking about individuals because we make up the church. But corporately as a church, too, we need to be free of financial prejudice. We don't need to let financial position influence the role of the church or the work of the church or the decisions of the church in any way or the actions of the church in any way. It should never be controlled by financial things. This church has never been a wealthy church. We don't live in an area that is a particularly wealthy area. I mean, worldwide, yes, but, but in our country, no. 
not so much. And so things have always been tight financially. It's always been a struggle to pay all the bills. It's always been a struggle to meet all the needs when we get requests for help. It's always a struggle to help everybody that we're trying to help. Always because we're so dependent on people giving and people aren't giving well in the church in America today. And consistently here at Lakeshore, not everybody's giving the way they need to give. And so it puts pressure on the church. You just got to know that's the truth. It puts pressure on the church to do the ministry that God has called us to do because everybody wants us to keep doing all the good stuff, but it requires the financial support of the members, of those who attend, to be able to do all that good stuff that everybody wants the church to do. You can't do it without that. That's the real world that we live in. But here's the tension. Here's the pressure. We know that it takes that. So if somebody comes in that has a lot of money and the potential to give a lot of money, to support financially everything the church is trying to do, don't you think there's temptation to maybe cater to somebody like that? To maybe allow them to have a little more influence or a little more say than somebody who doesn't have the ability to give like that? Now, I want to brag on our leaders here. They have never succumbed to that temptation, not even once. There's never been any catering to anybody in any way based on what they could or couldn't give by our leadership at this church. It's always based on prayerfully considering what does God want, what is God's will here. Never, ever based on what somebody can give to the church. We don't make decisions based on that, ever. And I'm thankful for that because it would be a corruption of the church to do it any other way. But friends, I know churches where that has been the case. Uh, that's why we don't put little plaques on everything. This person gave that. And this person donated that. We don't put plaques on anything. They won't even give me my parking space. They just said park beside the dumpster in the back. So. <laughs> my plaque is the dumpster. Because the church cannot be controlled by that. And that's what he's talking about here. Financial prejudice in the church is wrong. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said this. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Nothing about life should be decided by whether you have a lot of stuff or not a lot of stuff. That's got nothing to do with what life is really all about. So don't let that be the controlling factor of your decisions. Do what's right, whether it's financially beneficial or not. Just do what's right, period. It reminds me of a young man who was at the subway station, and this was years ago before we had all the cell phones and everything, and he asked a gentleman next to him who was wearing a really nice watch, and he said, could you tell me the time? And the man didn't respond. And he said, uh, excuse me, could you, could you share the time with me? And he didn't respond. Finally, he nudged him and he said, sir, is it too much trouble for you? Could you just tell me what time it is? And he said, no, I can't. He said, why not? He says, well, here's the deal. You ask me to tell you the time and I tell you the time. Then you're going to want to start a conversation. You're going to ask me about what I'm doing or who I am. I'm going to tell you about myself. I'm going to tell you about my family. You'll find out I've got a daughter about your age and she's pretty. You'll find out that she's a really nice girl. You'll want to meet her. You'll meet her and you'll like her. And then you'll want to date her. And then you'll end up wanting to marry her. And I'm not about to let my daughter marry a man who can't afford a watch. (laughs) 
See, he judged them based on face value, didn't he? We need to get away from financial prejudice. The second thing is, is we need to be free of racial prejudice. The scripture is clear on this. Jesus set a great example on this. But as I was preparing this message, I came across a connection that for some reason, in all these years of teaching in, in, in the book of Acts, I missed this uh, particular thing about this passage. In Acts uh, 11 and verse 26, it says the disciples were called Christians first in what town? Do you remember? In Antioch. I love that. And I, I, had, I had caught that connection, right? But then in Acts 13 and verse 1, there's a descriptive phrase or, or passage about the church in Antioch. Here's what it says. Now, the church at Antioch, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. You know what they would have been in Antioch? Gentiles. All right? That's the town they're in. It's a Gentile town. So the prophets and teachers there would have been Gentiles. There's Barnabas. You know what Barnabas was? A Jew. There's Simeon called Niger. You know why he was called Niger? Because he was black. That's what that word means. So there you got a black man who's a leader in the church there in Antioch. Lucius of Serene. You know what we find about Lucius? Scholars believe he was a friend of Paul's who was a slave. So you've got a slave there in the church. Okay. Menin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. In other words, that means he was one of the aristocrat families in that town, in Antioch, okay? And Saul, Saul was an interesting character, right? He was a Jew, but he also had Roman citizenship. He was well-educated, but he was also a former persecutor of the church. You've got all of those people in leadership roles of the church in Antioch. How cool is that? The most diverse church in the New Testament was where? Antioch. <laughs> I love it. Just this week, somebody sent me a video of another preacher saying that what we need to do is just have black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches and Asian churches because we can better evangelize that way. Here's the problem with that. It is ungodly, unscriptural in every way to think that that's the way we need to reach people for Christ. There's nothing godly about that at all. What Christ teaches in the Word is that we shouldn't even look at that when it comes to trying to bring people to Jesus. And that's why I love being the pastor of Lakeshore Christian Church. I love the leadership here. I love the staff that we have here. I love the volunteers that give their time and talents and resources. I love the members who support and who come and who welcome everybody. You see, I never hesitate to invite anybody into our meetings because I know they will be welcomed, and it doesn't matter about face value. And I want you to understand how rare that is in the church world today and how sad it is that it's so rare in the church world today. Sunday morning in America is still the most segregated time in our country. There's more integration in the workplace, in the schools, in the marketplace by far than there is in the church in America today. And who ought to be leading the way? The church should be leading the way with this. So I want to thank you for being that kind of church family, but I also want to challenge us to understand that just because we're attending a service together doesn't mean there aren't still things to work on. 
that there's not still attitude that needs to be brought more obediently under the control of the Spirit of God. There's not still judgment taking place that shouldn't be taking place on all sides of this issue. We need to be careful. I had a black family here share with me that when they first started coming, their own family criticized them because they were attending a white church in their eyes, right? And I had another couple that's interracial couple that said they still sometimes feel like they're looked at differently because they're an interracial couple. You see, we have a long way to go. We still got to work on these things because God's word is clear. We need to be free of spiritual prejudice. In Luke 9, verse 49 and 50, we see another one that we forget about sometimes, and I want to close with it. We need to be free of spiritual prejudice too. Spiritual prejudice. In Luke 9, 49, it says, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons your, your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not what? One of us. Well, what does he mean, one of us? Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Sometimes we have spiritual prejudice. We think of ourselves as spiritually ahead of other people, spiritually more advanced than those people who aren't like us, who don't get it like we do. Uh, I am always amazed at how on Facebook and other social media somebody will post some spiritual comment and it's almost like a competition just started to see who can make the most spiritual comment then, right? I'm more spiritual than they are. I found a quote that's even better than that one, right? Makes me more spiritual. And I do more in the church than that person. Why is that person so, uh, so uh, revered when I do more than they do? It even affects me sometimes. I was at a conference one time. They had a speaker come in to talk about having church, how churches ought to be integrated. If you live in an integrated community, your church ought to be integrated too. And I'm thinking, why didn't they ask me to speak on that, right? I know just as much as that person. I deal with that just as much as they do. Right? See how easy it is for that spiritual competition to be there? They don't belong to the same group as us, but they love Jesus. They're trying to honor Jesus. They're still learning and growing. We're not spiritually superior to anybody. I love that we belong to what is called the Restoration Movement. It's a great movement. It's a movement to bring the church back to the pattern found in the New Testament. And it has some great slogans like, where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we're silent. It says in essentials, uh, uh, we have to stand for those things that are essential. But in non-essentials, we need to have unity in those areas. And, and those are all good qualities, good statements, good good uh, traditions to have as, as a church. But here's the problem. We don't always practice those things. That's why I was so thankful that we at Lakeshore were able to, to uh, be participating with other churches in Nashville with the Awaken Nashville event we did where we all just divided up the names of people in Nashville and all the churches that wanted to prayed for those people. You know what? We can all agree that it's good to pray for people, can't we? Can't, no matter what church group you belong to, can we agree to that? Yes. So couldn't we work together on those things that we agree on? Absolutely. We don't have to have spiritual superiority to any other group out there. We need to understand that we're all in this together. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would all be one. 
as he and the Father are one. That's what he wants for followers of Jesus Christ. And he said, if we could have that kind of unity, the world would believe that God sent him here to be the Savior. We need to learn to be better at not having spiritual superiority attitude toward others around us here. There was a lady who, uh, her dog had died, and she didn't know, uh, she wasn't part of a regular church, but she knew the Baptist preacher in town, so she asked the Baptist preacher if he would do a funeral for her dog. And he said, ma'am, I'm sorry, we just don't do funerals for dogs. She says, well, I'm sorry about that. Do you know anybody that would? I was going to pay him $1,000. He said, well, why didn't you tell me it was a Baptist dog? (laughs) Makes all the difference, right? I want to close with this passage. It's beautiful in Galatians 3. I want you to look at this with me. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 26. Here is how God wants the church to be, and here's how he sees the church if it's going to be what God wants it to be. Okay? So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we need to repent before you. For all those times, we have looked at people on face value. And I know some of us were raised with more of that than others. Some of us have that ingrained into our past and our history. But, Father, you're all about making things new. And I believe under the control of your spirit and the teaching of your word, we can be transformed powerfully, amazingly into people who stop doing that. People who do a better job of learning to fulfill the royal law in our lives, to love our neighbor as ourself, and everybody is our neighbor. Father, help us. Help us to know that, that the church that honors you, that glorifies you, is a church where all people, all people are invited to come into your kingdom through faith in your son, Jesus. If there's somebody here today who needs to take that step in their lives, help them to know that they are welcome to come. They come loving you. You said that's what it means to be part of your kingdom. They're willing to love you. Loving you, according to your word, means they submit to your teaching, your instruction. So if they're willing to come, repenting of sin, willing to be obedient to your teaching, all are welcome in your kingdom. Father, help us to welcome them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.